The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Faith, we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that this so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice that Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, or than Cain. God commended, commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he commended the wor- condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You may be seated. And if you're in kindergarten through fifth grade and would like to go to Children's Church, please join our volunteers by the Kid Zone sign. long time since I've tried to preach two sermons in a row and my voice is already tired so if I <clears throat> do a lot of clearing in my throat please forgive me. I'm very grateful to Jared and Ben and the staff at Restoration Southside to be here with you. It's a privilege and a joy that we in this country still have the freedom to gather around God's word and to worship our living God. Um, there's a lot of connections between the Huffman family and the Perkins family. Uh, Jared and I went to the same seminary, St. Louis, and we worshiped at the same church with their family. Of course, Jared was much younger then. And after seminary and 14 years of pastoral ministry, uh, my wife and I uh, retired from the ministry and came here, Chattanooga, because two of our three children are here and all of our wonderful grandchildren. And When we came here, restoration was still a dream in everybody's mind. And now it's here, and we are so glad to be here with you and to be together with you. After we had been here in not quite a year, my wife was diagnosed with stage four metastatic breast cancer. And in all of the treatment and chemotherapy and other things, we were not able to visit as much as we wished. And so I'm kind of newish here. Um, I feel that same awkwardness after the service when I don't know anyone. And uh, if you are feeling that way, restoration is a great place to not. Just be brave. Walk up to somebody, say, hi, my name is, and get to know them. It's a wonderful place also to learn to serve and love each other on the way to our destination. Um, We are going to be in Hebrews as the reading was said, Um, and some of you may think, wait a minute, we're supposed to be in Proverbs this summer. I got special permission from Jared to be in this passage today. So 
don't worry, I'm not being disobedient. But there is also a, um, a strong connection between what this passage is about and what we've been learning from Proverbs, from the preaching. Um, what is the beginning of wisdom? According to Proverbs, the fear of the Lord. And they've been careful to say, that's not terror, although it's not wrong to be terrified of the living God, but it is awe and worship and love and approach. It is putting God in the center of what we think and believe and live by. And so this passage is about the way to please God. And that goes hand in hand with people who are hearing and living by the wisdom of Proverbs. Every once in a while we are affected, when, especially when we're younger, by something that somebody says, and we may carry the effect of it a long time in our lives. And it was the case with me. High school biology class, our teacher, I don't even remember his name now, but he was incredibly intimidating to 15-year-olds. He believed and taught that Darwinian evolution was settled science, and that anybody who disagreed with that or even questioned it was an ignorant fool. He especially loved to hear if any of his students had Christian leanings or thought there was validity to the creation story, and he was merciless if he ever found that out. So guess what? He never said. We didn't want to be a target for his sarcasm. In fact, uh, during second semester, we had a student teacher that we all loved, and he made her cry in class one day. That's how cruel he was. But he said several things over and over that stuck with me, shamefully. One is, Faith is blind. Faith is blind trust. To be sophisticated, to be intelligent, to, to be acceptable was to absorb and parrot back what he was teaching about the origin of all things. And another thing he would often say was, faith is just a blind leap in the dark. And he would ridicule people that were believers and that stuck with me. Um, as I grew, I was a believer then, but very young in understanding the Bible. And I often wondered, what is faith really? And, and is it really just blind trust? Is it really just a leap in the dark? And I would read the Gospels and hear what Jesus would say about faith and the role faith played in that. And I would ask myself, then how, where do I get this faith? Jesus would say to his disciples, oh, ye of little faith. And I thought he was berating them, but he wasn't. He was encouraging them. He taught that faith as the size of a mustard seed was enough to move mountains. I had no clue what that meant. And so I carried with me that feeling, that sense that faith is yuck. Faith is not respectable. Faith is what? A blind trust a leap in the dark. And it took a long time and God's very great <laughs> kindness for me to grow out of thinking that. And this passage was pivotal in my life. And so Garrett, Jared gave me permission to talk about it. Um, we also think, frankly, live in a time where it's still that way. Maybe it isn't instructors in school, but our culture wants everybody to conform to certain narratives. And you can be canceled if you don't. And there are things that are being taught that are clearly in opposition to what is in this book, 
And you will probably be made to feel like an ignorant fool if you disagree or stand up for what this book is saying. So Hebrews, a pastoral letter that's majestic in its scope, powerful place in the New Testament. Unique things are said about God and the Lord Jesus Christ in this book, but it's also a book to people in crisis. People whose faith and understanding were being tested severely by the opposition of the world. People who were wondering, was it right to leave Judaism and become a follower of Jesus Christ if it's going to cost me this? Everything, in some cases, even life. The writer to the Hebrews wants these people in crisis to know, yes, here's what faith is. Here's how it works. Here is what reward comes to faith. So hang in there. Would you join me in prayer? Let's ask God to bless our time. Father, truly we are dark in our understanding until by your spirit you open our eyes, the eyes of our heart, to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that the means that you use is this great gift of faith. Would you please, in your mercy, not let anything that I say hinder the hearts of us to understand what you mean here, what you teach, and may none of us fail to be pleasing to you by living a life of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, there's really three simple things that we want to see. Um, the passage is structured by talking about, first, what, what is faith? If we were to just set it up in front of us in a static display and say, what is it? Describe it. He does that for us. And then he goes on to tell us about what it did for the people of ancient, ancient faith and what we understand by faith and the people that lived by faith and God commending them. So first, first, what is it? What is faith? Verse 1 of chapter 11 says this. Faith, now faith, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That has something of a little subjective overtone, doesn't it? You and I can have assurance about something and it may or may not be really true. Or we can have a conviction. Everybody has convictions about this or that and they can vary from person to person and convictions can also be just very personal. But actually these words have very objective and very powerful reality of steadfastness and, and fixedness. The word assurance that we first read, assurance of things hoped for, can really be translated just as well, reality. What faith is, is it's understanding the reality of things hoped for. It's not a question of if they may happen, but when they will happen, because they are certain and sure, the things that we're hoping for. And that second word, elenkos, conviction, can also be used and most often is used as proof in a legal sense, as demonstration of the rightness of the innocence of somebody. And it is a very strong word that means, there, here's proof. Proof of what? Proof of things not seen. As I got older and thought back to my high school biology teacher, one thing I realized was he, he was assuming something. I have to tell you, on the first service, I stepped off the platform. So if I get close, somebody just raise their hand. 
They say, pay attention to where you're standing. The thing that I think he was assuming was, whatever is seen is real, and what is unseen is not. Because what he was trying to teach us is, this is why faith is blind, because it doesn't see anything. It steps out in the void to hope something is there. And so he would ridicule it and use sarcasm. But actually, what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is, no, it's just exactly the opposite way around. Faith is what is seeing, and not believing is blind. Not believing is shutting your eyes. Not believing is turning away from clear facts and evidence. Um, imagine that you are hiking in unfamiliar location, and there's deep woods, and you've not been there before, and you didn't bring your topo map, and you're not certain really where you are, but you're not worried because you have your trusty compass with you. So you pull it out and you look at it, and as you're watching to see which way it finally settles, it never stops, it never stops spinning. And you think, uh-oh, what happened? Somehow the needle got demagnetized. It doesn't know where north is. And because it doesn't know, I don't know, and I'm really lost. That's like how we test things internally, our opinions, the opinions of others. They're all like that compass needle. They are all over the map. We never know for sure, is this real and true? Or is this just somebody's idea or even mine? Am I deceived about this? But then we think while we're in the woods, okay, I just gotta wait a little while, the darkness will fall, and then I'm gonna know exactly what direction is where. Because you're an amateur astronomer and you know how to find the Big Dipper, and you know how to line up the bottom stars of the Big Dipper, and the next star that you see is the North Star, the star that never moves. Time relief maps of the star, the night sky show everything in an arc or circle moving around. Polaris, the North Star, goes nowhere because it's directly in line with the axis of the Earth. And what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is faith Faith is this certain, faith is this sure of reality and the proof of things unseen because its foundation is not feeling or emotion or opinion. Its foundation is the word of God. What? We know that because Hebrews, the whole epistle begins that way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son or in his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Faith's foundation, though not seen, is the very words of Almighty God, who speaking brings things to reality. Maybe a couple of quick contrasts will help. Um, seeing versus being blind. Faith is seeing. It says very clearly, faith is seeing what is unseen. Faith is seeing what's unseen in the future. Faith is convicted of what is coming. Faith knows the proof of what has been promised. Um, I've long had a fascination, my, my kids will tell you this is funny, but I've long had a fascination with New Zealand, the country. It's been fascinating to me, the geography, the location in the Southern Hemisphere, the beauty of its beaches and its mountains, 
um, and its people and have often wanted to go there. Never had the time or the money to make that trip. But if I were to tell you, um, I've never been there, I've never seen it, therefore it doesn't exist, you would say, that's ridiculous. Then I would laugh and say, oh, I know, that's right, because I just watched an ambient music video two hours long of drone footage of all of this part of New Zealand. I see it, I know it's there. That's faith, faith is seeing the reality of things. To say silly things like, I don't see it, it's not true. I don't see it, it's not there. We couldn't even live life if that were the case. So faith is seeing, not blind. The other thing is, faith is not afraid of questions. My teacher made me think and made me feel like faith just cowers in the corner and mumbles, I believe what I believe, don't bother me. Don't upset me with facts. Don't tell me things that I don't want to hear that will change my mind. And actually, faith is just the opposite. Faith is fearless in its questioning. Faith follows the truth wherever it actually leads. Faith questions. In fact, I think one of the ways that we know that the Holy Spirit is working the beginnings of faith in us is that we begin to ask, seriously ask the ultimate questions. Where did everything come from? Why are things the way they are? Why am I here? What am I for? Faith begins to ask those questions without fear because it knows that the word of God will give the true and real answer. So that really makes it clear, the first part of verse six, why that it is impossible to please God without faith. Because if I don't have faith, I'm really saying, I don't believe God what you've said. I, in fact, think it's all a lie. Where does that come from? Well, one day I was reading in the Psalms, Psalm 14, Psalm 53 says the same thing. Psalm 1 begins this way. The fool, the Hebrew word naval means empty, the empty one says in his heart, there is no God. I first read that, I kind of smirked and said, it's a good thing I'm not a fool. I know better than that. I know God exists. But it's like the Spirit of God said, wait, 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 you haven't gotten it all yet. What is he doing, or she? He or she is shutting their eyes and closing their ears and cowering in the corner and saying, I don't care if God exists or not. I'm gonna tell myself this lie. I'm gonna to say to myself in my heart, God doesn't exist. Why would a person do that? And God said to me, not in an audible voice, but in his conviction, he said, you know, even though you are a believer in me, you know why. If there is a time when you are setting out in deliberate pattern of sin, you know I've commanded it not to happen. You know that I warned you against it, and yet you do it anyway. You set your mind to do and go after this thing that I have said is wrong, what are you saying? Even as a believer, you're saying, there is no God. I don't want to know what he wants. I don't want to hear what he commands. I don't want that. I want what I want, leave me alone. And in that case, it becomes clear, it came clear to me that I need something from God to have this kind of faith. 
I need the same kind of power that causes the blind to see, that raises the dead, that cures leprosy. I need that same kind of graceful, loving power in my own heart to believe and to see who God is and what he has said and commanded. So without it, clearly, we cannot please God. I cannot and you cannot. But faith isn't just a static definition. Faith is in motion. Faith is going somewhere. Faith is active. In the second part of verse 6, we see on the second place what faith does. What does it do? And it says clearly, I've got the wrong page. Without faith, it's impossible to please him for... Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith is active. Faith is doing something. Faith begins to be awakened to who God is and what does it want? It wants to draw near. It wants to come to him. It wants to know more of him. It is open and questioning and curious and yes, intrigued. What is this God really like? What is it like to know him? and to believe him and to love him and to follow him. And so the writer to the Hebrews very helpfully says, well, the first thing, the most fundamental thing is you must know that he exists. And that is exactly the way the wording is in the original Greek text, he is. But the writer to the Hebrews has already written a lot about who he is. And I just want to remind you of a couple things. He is, yes, he exists, but he is creator. We heard already in verse 3, by faith we know, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God is the creator of all things and the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. Um, You can go out and hug a tree. See that tree out there? That's Jesus' tree. You didn't create it. You don't give it permission to grow. You don't help it. You don't do anything, it's there, it's alive, and you and I are not responsible for it. All things in creation are made and upheld by God. Very simply, from the highest that you can imagine to the most intimate. The psalmist says so clearly, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork. Now, in this age, we know a lot more about that than the psalmist ever did, or Abraham did when God took him outside and said, look up. Abraham, count the stars. Tell me how many they are. If you can count them, you will know, even though you are childless and 99 years old, you will know that your descendants will be more numerous than the stars that are in the sky. Now, what do we know? We can see farther into the universe. We can see the heavens in ways that the ancients here could not see. They were overwhelmed. And how much more are we? What do we see? Well, astrophysicists and astrologists will tell you that as far as we can tell, in our very local area of space, Milky Way galaxy, there are about 250 billion stars. It takes light a thousand centuries at 186,000 miles a second to get from one side of the galaxy to the other. That's just the local area of space. Then the astronomer will look you in the eye and he said, and far as we can tell, there are about two trillion of these galaxies. 
and new discoveries are being made every day. What? What kind of word creates this and upholds it? How much power, wisdom, might? Well, Isaiah tells us, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Two trillion galaxies of billions of stars each, all named and orderly maintained by this God. And now in a more intimate way, let me ask you about you. Who are you today? Step outside yourself and think, well, I'm such and such an age. I live in such and such a time. I'm of this race and this gender. I'm like this, I'm not like that. Where did you come from? When did you decide when you would be born? How did you pick the parents that you had? What about the process of knitting you together in your mother's womb? Were you involved in that? What about that moment of grace when you breathe and your lungs fill and that cry comes and you are alive, you are living, but you do not really understand what that means and you begin to live and to grow. Faith says, I'll tell you. Oh God, you have searched me and known me. You know my rising up and my sitting down before a word is on my tongue. You know it all together. You knit me in my mother's womb. You brought me forth and all the days that were made for me, you knew before I was even born. All about me, you know, you hem me before and behind. You surround me. This knowledge is so high, I can't attain to it. And I know that every day of my life is a day where you have carried me and kept me. That's what faith says about you and about me. He exists as creator. He also is savior. Hebrews 1.3, that verse that we started with, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Maybe you're new to the Christian faith. Maybe you wonder about this, but what this word is saying is God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uh, is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He upholds everything by the word of his power. And he made purification for sins. One of my favorite stories of miracles in the Gospels is in Luke chapter 5. If you're familiar with it, you may even know it from a Sunday school story or a song. But here's Jesus in the Galilean area. He's been teaching and preaching and power from God is with him to heal. Thousands of people have been flocking to hear him and to see him and be healed by him. This wasn't happening in a corner. This wasn't a silent, quiet, little secret thing. This was huge. And so crowded was it that this man, a paralytic, couldn't get there. His friends couldn't get there. You remember the story. 
seeking something that no one could give. They opened the tiles in the roof and let their friend down on the pallet and in front of Jesus. And he says something so mind-blowing to him that I think the, the audience there knew it. And sometimes if we pause, we really know it. What he said was, man, your sins are forgiven you. Let time stop and think about what that means. Jesus in that moment was saying, your sins aren't going to just disappear. I'm not going to wave a magic wand and they go away. You truly are guilty before God for things you have done and things you have not done. The law condemns you. And this mountain, this heap of sins that he had, that I have, that you have, Jesus says, I deliberately say to you, by the authority that I have, your sins are forgiven. What that means is Jesus was saying to him, I'm going to become your sinfulness, your guiltiness. I'm going to take it all from beginning to end, from start to finish, and I'm going to make purification. I, the Son of God, the upholder of all things, am going to become sin that you might be made righteous before God. And so the Spirit is saying, look, listen, this is an invitation for you and for everyone who hears this to understand what is being said, what is being promised, what is the invitation that's being given. It is to know that you are righteous before God Almighty, that you no, 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 no longer need to fear that guilt and the shame of our past sins. Not only is he creator and savior, but he is the rewarder. We see that so clearly here in verse two. By it, the people of old received their commendation. Commendation from who? From God. God said, you are pleasing to me. Faith draws near. It draws near to the God who is, who is creator, who is triune, who is savior. But then this pattern of faith becomes clear in the examples that the writer gives us. Faith really has these two parts. One, it's a drawing near to God, a desire to worship, to know him truly, to love him, even though by nature I do not. And secondly, to realize and confess before him that I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of his notice, of his forgiveness, of his care. Those two things are bound together. And we know that because of these beautiful examples. The second man born in the human race was a man of faith, Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. The narrative in Genesis is very sparse, but we know several things. And we know that Abel must have known them. We know that God, after he called out to Adam and Eve, who were hiding in shame at what they had done, called God essentially a liar and believed the lie of the serpent and had committed this crime of eating what he told them they should not eat and were hiding from him in the futile attempt to cover up. God said, Adam, where are you? And in the ensuing conversation, he says, among other things, Eve from you will come one, from your line, from humanity will come one who will crush the serpent's head. 
Wow, Abel had to have known that. His mother and father had to have told him that, dressed as they were in the skins that God had made for them to show that there was going to be a purification of sin to come from her, from the human race. And so Abel, believing this, believing this word from God, brings to God in worship a sacrifice. And it's a sacrifice that portrays what? The fact that he's a sinner and that death must occur for sin to be forgiven. And so he brings a lamb, not because he thinks the lamb will become guilty of his sin, but because he's looking to things unseen, the promise of God's word to his mother and to the whole human race that a time and a person would come when this purification of sins would be accomplished. Abel believed God and he died for it. The first martyr for faith, feeling the scorn and the hatred of his brother, who is really actually hating and scorning God, he is murdered for his faith. And in his death, he speaks, God says, God accepted his sacrifice and commended him, witnessed that he was pleasing to him. Wow, that gives me incredible hope. And you too, I hope. Another one, Enoch, by faith, Enoch didn't see death. Because why? He was walking with God. The Hebrew way of saying is that he had made God his nature, his word, his commands. He had made God his north star. And he had conformed his life in obedience to what God commanded. He walked with God in humility. And there was no death for him. He was taken. And the writer to the Hebrews says now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. God rewards faith. Was Enoch perfect? No. Was Abel perfect? Perfect, no. Are you perfect? Am I? No. But in their faith, they pleased God and God rewarded them. God commends and is pleased. Well, faith, not only by definition and by what it does, but we also need to hear what faith receives. The verse says, he who draws near to God, whoever draws near to God, not only must believe that he exists, but that he rewards those who seek him. What kind of rewarder is God, do you think? The one who made you. Do you think he knows how to give good rewards? Ah, the New Testament says clearly, God is the giver of life and health and all good things. You and I have been showered with gifts from God from the day of our birth until this day. But this reward is not specifically just that or not generally just that. Um, a writer in a book that he wrote or an actually an address he gave, C.S. Lewis, and the address, The Weight of Glory, helped fire my imagination because the New Testament is full from beginning to end with ideas about rewards. God's rewarding faithfulness, God's rewarding people of faith. The overflowing and staggering promises of the New Testament, Lewis said, can be summed up by these, these five things. To be with Christ forever. Wow. To be like him inside and out. To be glorious, to be fed and feasted. And to be ruling, to be part of God's house. Being a perfect mirror reflecting God's presence, God's glory. All of these things he promises, and in words that are 
staggering in their beauty and in their import. And a quote from him in that very passage. And that is enough to raise our thoughts to what may happen when the redeemed soul beyond all hope and nearly beyond belief learns at last that she has pleased him whom she was created to please. So let me imagine or ask you to imagine this. The prospect is being held out to us in scripture to be pleasing to God with all of our mess, with all of our sins and the lack of obeying, obeying everything about us. We know, um, we don't trust and feel that we could really please him yet, but the writer to the Hebrews is saying, yes, yes. We may please him. We may please him by people who are faithful, who are of faith. What must it be like to know that God is eternally happy and joyful? Who God in the Trinity has loved each other, the three people of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, from all eternity and to all eternity. They're complete, their happiness is complete, their fullness of joy is complete. And yet, the writer to the Hebrews holds out this prospect that you and I may stand before his face and cause God joy, bring him to smile at us, to please, to be pleased with us. What must that be like? What must that really mean? How can we even capture how it's like a secret deep in our hearts that that could really be true? And yet that's exactly in an unblushing way what faith will receive. In the light of that then, and in the light of, of, of where we really are today, um, think about this. Noah was warned of what was to come. He believed the word of God. He built an ark. He saved his family. He was commended by God for being a man of faith. You and I know there's not a flood coming. God has said there will never be another flood, but there is a day coming in which we will stand before the face of one from whom all the universe will flee away. And we will hear either, well done, good and faithful servant, welcome to the joy of your Lord, or depart from me, I never knew you. What must that mean? That's real, that's coming. That's coming for me and that's coming for you. And that warning is just so that we would follow Noah's example, hear it and believe it and shape our lives according to this faith. After all of that, what can we do? How do we respond? Well, maybe two prayers. One from Psalm 139, the last two verses, 23 and 24. You have searched me and known me, O God. Search me and know me. Test my heart to see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalmist contemplates God, his maker, and he wants this more than anything. Search my heart. Help me to know it, understand it. Lead me in the way everlasting. And the other prayer from the New Testament, Mark chapter 9. The man with a demon-possessed son appeals to Jesus for help. If you can do anything, he says, help us. 
Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And the man blurts out almost immediately, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Those are the prayers that I need to pray every day, and you too. Search me and know me, O God. See if there's a wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Increase my faith. Let my understanding of the solidity and the power of the word of God be be never shaken. And Lord, help my unbelief. I own it. It's mine. Take it away. Would you pray with me? Increase my faith. Let my understanding of the solidity and the power of the word of God be, be never shaken. And Lord, help my unbelief. I own it, it's mine. Take it away. Would you pray with me?